Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime, together for you. Welcome to episode 32 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thanks for joining me. All right, this week I had a fantastic interview with Lily Nichols, who is a registered dietitian with a focus and interest on nutrition in pregnancy and related to gestational diabetes. Now, I know that pregnancy and gestational diabetes might not apply to everybody who's listening, but I think there are a lot of you out there who are in childbearing ages still and may have pregnancies that could come up or who may have been through pregnancies and maybe had gestational diabetes and might be interested in her information. I also was just interested in it as a learning point for my own practice. And I have some takeaway points from the interview that I'm going to go do a bit more reading around. uh, As I found Lily to be like a complete wealth of knowledge. Uh, When you listen to it, you can really see that she really understands her evidence and where the research is at with prenatal nutrition. I think it's worth just giving a disclaimer again that this podcast is for educational purposes only. So listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice. If you are pregnant or have gestational diabetes, you need to go and talk to your own doctor or a dietitian that you have available or read Lily's book if that's what you'd like to do to get your own information about whether or not you should apply this information to yourself. Lily is the author of two books. One is Real Food for Pregnancy, and the other is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And as you'll hear in the interview, her main focus is maximizing the nutrition by eating real whole food as close to its as possible. I really wish that I had this information back when I was still having pregnancies, Both of my pregnancies, both the one with twins and then the one after I had gestational diabetes, that was before I'd started eating a lower carb diet. Um, And I I wish in retrospect, I had known about this. I don't know if I would have eaten a really low carb diet, but I definitely would have been more aware of uh, my starches and fruit and things like that, and maybe eaten more fat on purpose uh, than what I did uh, but I tried to follow the food guidelines in the Canadian Food Guide for Gestational Diabetes, eating carbs every meal. And I remember thinking, oh, I have to make sure I get my carbs in, um, peeing on the ketone sticks every morning, um, and taking bigger and bigger doses of insulin as I was doing it. Um, and, you know, my sugars were reasonably well controlled doing that, but they were reasonably well controlled with giving myself insulin uh, multiple times a day. And it's been interesting since I've gone through the obesity medicine training and attending those conferences and you start learning about epigenetics. So you start learning about the impact of the prenatal environment on the offspring and risk for things like diabetes and obesity and all that stuff. And I really wish I'd known all this stuff before I ever even got pregnant so I could have reduced the exposure um, that my kids had to that elevated sugar environment that they had when I was pregnant. But hey, hindsight's 20-20, right? 
and you live and you learn. And so you can't really spend time regretting choices that I thought I was making my best interest. But I do find this topic quite fascinating just because of my own personal background in it. All right, let's get to the interview, guys. If you have any questions, send me uh, email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. You can find Lily on her website at lilynicholsrdn.com. I'll put that link in the show notes so that you can check her out. And her books are widely available on Amazon and other places as well. All right. Welcome to the show, Lily. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. So I'm excited to have you on because I think topics of what to eat in pregnancy and then also if somebody's diagnosed with gestational diabetes, uh, I think is a really interesting topic. And it's something that as physicians, we're not really taught much beyond just the food guide. Right. I would argue too, I think there's, as physicians, there's a fear of in pregnancy doing things outside of the established guidelines as well. Um, 100%. And I can relate to that fear. Yeah. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got where you are? Yeah. So I, my background is as a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator. And I have worked in the prenatal nutrition field on a lot of different capacities. It just happens to have become the focus of most of my career. So I have worked on the public policy level with the state of California's California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, also called Sweet Success. I have worked um, clinically directly under a perinatologist who specialized in gestational diabetes, so a lot of experience with managing it um, clinically firsthand, and then on a number of research consulting projects, and of course now um, writing about my experience, and essentially from seeing applying the guidelines into clinical practice and seeing how poorly they actually performed. I mean, the chances that a pregnant person will, quote, fail diet therapy when following the conventional guidelines are pretty dismal. It's like 40%, sometimes 50%. Um, And we do have data showing that we can significantly reduce the percentage of women requiring insulin or medication with different nutrition advice. And that's really what I observed in practice and ultimately led me to writing my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and then also now Real Food for Pregnancy. There's just so much room for improvement on the guidelines and we can do so much better for mamas and babies. And, you know, as clinicians, it makes your job a lot more enjoyable when the advice you're giving actually gives people results versus <laughs> making their blood sugar worse or their health outcomes worse. So I think it's really important that we have this conversation openly, especially among you know fellow healthcare practitioners. Um, it's time that we start looking at the guidelines a little more critically, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's start with, um, with pregnancy. And what is your approach to nutrition in pregnancy? So as a whole, um, What I like to focus on is the micronutrients that are involved in fetal development and supporting a mother's body as it changes and expands and adapts to pregnancy to reduce the risk of complications. So when I look at prenatal nutrition, um, I'm usually taking sort of like a bottom up approach from the micronutrients up and sort of reverse engineering a prenatal diet based on 
matching those needs. So are we getting enough iron? Are we getting enough B12? Are we getting enough choline? Are we getting enough omega-3s? With as much emphasis on getting these things through food first as much as possible, and then sort of see where the macros fall. And the macros tend to fall in a much different uh, percentage breakdown than they are in our uh, conventional guidelines. Um, but that's how I go about it. And if you're going to plan a nutrient-dense diet, it means starting with real food, food that is unprocessed and not just like whole grains instead of refined grains, but like looking at unprocessed food in like how does food actually come to us? You know, not just like the plant foods and how they're processed, but what about the animal foods? We've had such a nutritionism sort of approach to nutrition over the years where we're singling out a nutrient that's good or bad instead of looking at food in the context of how it comes to us. And if we're looking at eggs, for example, they come with yolks. And forever we thought that cholesterol was bad. And now that's kind of been shifting, luckily, in the past 20, 30 years. Um, but also now we're seeing like, oh, hey, what's the trade-off if you take out the yolks out of the eggs? It's not just you've reduced the intake of dietary cholesterol. You've reduced the intake of choline significantly, the number one source. You've reduced the intake of DHA. You've reduced the intake of vitamin B12, um, particularly so if you're somebody who doesn't eat many other animal products. You know, there's a lot of trade-offs for taking the whole, taking a piece out of the whole of mm -hmm. real food. So I think we need to expand the definition of real food to encompass unprocessed animal foods as well. And that means not removing the fat from animal products because there are valuable nutrients in there that work synergistically with everything else that nature intended them to have. Right. And so something like, so the example of the egg, there's a lot of those micronutrients that you talked about at the beginning in the yolk. How do those impact developing fetuses and pregnancies? So in many, many different ways. So mm -hmm. choline we'll talk about a little bit because I think it's something that um, anybody who works in the prenatal, perinatal space should have on their radar and uh, most people don't. So I'll start with that example and then you can just sort of keep piecing together dozens and dozens of other examples to kind of make your, your point on this. Um, so choline is a B vitamin-like compound which was named after the rest of the B vitamins got their little numerical numbers assigned with them. But it works right alongside folate um, and vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 in methylation. Um, so I think every, your audience is all familiar with what methylation is, so I won't bother defining it. But essentially, you know, you're looking at some of the very fundamentals of early in utero development. So prevention of neural tube defects. We have a mm -hmm. number of studies showing that choline is arguably just as important as folate in the prevention of neural tube defects in spina bifida, um, also cleft lip, cleft palate. So in those early stages, it's important, but also in the later stages of fetal development, it becomes important as well. And choline accumulates in pretty high amounts in the fetal brain. And they've done randomized controlled trials on different levels of supplementation in pregnant women and found that supplementing with a dose more than twice what our current recommended intake is in the U.S. And if I remember correctly, I think the recommended intake in Canada is actually a little bit lower than mm -hmm. where it's set in the U.S., by the way. Um, 
but a double dose of choline actually optimizes fetal brain development as measured by infant reaction time at four different time points in infancy and early toddlerhood. So it seems to play a valuable role in brain development. We have a number of like rodent and animal trials on it too, but just the fact that we have this human data as well is really comp compelling. And the number one source in our diet of egg of choline is eggs. And <laughs> if you're not eating eggs, it's really hard to meet your choline needs. So people who consume eggs consume about twice the amount of choline as people who don't consume eggs. We also know that choline helps to um, sort of shuttle DHA into the fetal brain. They work in tandem. And when you look at some of the highest choline foods, such as eggs, um, salmon is another great source. It comes packaged with DHA usually. So mm -hmm. there's some sort of nutrient synergy that just happens to be built into these foods that's actually uh, working in your favor. Mm. Uh, so what about B12 in pregnancy? Where is it important? So vitamin B12 is another really important nutrient that plays a um, big role in brain development, much like choline and DHA and a lot of these other micronutrients. Um, it is something that if B12 is not supplied in adequate amounts throughout pregnancy. Um, a mother is likely to become deficient herself and then will continue to pass on that deficiency, so to speak, to her baby because she'll also not transfer enough vitamin B12 through her breast milk. Um, so you start to see signs of neurological damage in these infants starting around four to seven months of age. Um, and in about 50% of those cases, it's irreversible, meaning there's like literal demyelination of their nerves that you can see when you run an MRI. Um, that's not necessarily corrected for when you start supplementing the baby and correcting the baby's vitamin B12 deficiency. So it's something that I think we need to pay careful attention to in pregnancy, particularly as there's um, more promotion of vegetarian and vegan diets um, by a lot of our health agencies, um, because if it's not coming in on the diet, it definitely does need to be supplemented with. And what's interesting is the current recommended daily allowance is likely set too low. When they've done studies in pregnancy and breastfeeding, they've found that levels at least triple what the current RDA is set at is mm -hmm. required for um, prevention of deficiency. So that's something where I think it gives a little nod to Maybe this is why we don't tend to see vegetarian or at least vegan diets, strictly vegan. You can get B12 from um, eggs and from dairy products, but if there's no animal foods coming in, you're really setting yourself up for a vitamin B12 deficiency without supplementation. So that's an important one for clinicians to have um, on their radar. And if you do hear from a client say that they're eating you know, a low animal product or completely vegan diet, you might want to add a vitamin B12, serum B12, and an MMA to their lab work to just see where they're at so you can supplement accordingly and prevent some of these, some of these problems. So if you do a B12 level on a, a patient or on yourself, uh, like thinking for people who might be pregnant themselves, and if it's in the normal range, does that mean it's adequate? Or are those normal ranges at the lab reflective of what's needed in pregnancy? Do you know? There's actually a recent study I read on this where they were looking at B12 levels around 
think it was around four to six months of pregnancy. No, 18 weeks of pregnancy. And that was actually predictive of a mother's risk of B12 deficiency and her baby's risk of B12 deficiency at, I think it was around six months of age. Um, mm -hmm. And they found that the amount, um, at least specifically for B12, it, th that was needed to prevent or that was predictive of whether or not a mother would be deficient later on um, and her infant was slightly higher than what the current cutoff is. I think it was in the upper 200s or 300s range. Okay. I'd have to look up the exact study to see the, um, the units that they used on all of that. But yeah, that's a great question because that's the really tricky thing about assessing nutrient status in pregnancy is with the hemodilution and so much happening with, there's just so many differences in nutrient transport um, happening. Sometimes it does throw off what our reference ranges are for nutrients. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is eating like a fairly whole food diet uh, and not vegetarian, would, could they be fairly confident that they're getting enough of these micronutrients or are there particular foods that they really have to be kind of very intentional about how much they're eating and including? So that's a good question because um, I personally believe that there is a, a big role for some specific nutrient-dense foods for pregnancy just to ensure we're getting enough of these micronutrients. And now that's mm -hmm. not to say we can't fill in the gaps with a prenatal vitamin or some supplements, um, but I, I think we need to be thinking food first, given that there's so much nutrient synergy going on and so much disagreement around what's optimal. So I gave you the choline example, the B12 example. We have similar data on B6 showing that optimal um, intake is probably double what it currently is. There's a whole bunch of controversy around how much um, uh, vitamin D is required. So there's some data suggesting that there was a statistical error when they set the vitamin D uh, requirements. And actually we should be aiming for around 10 times more than what the recommended intake oh, wow. is. We have randomized controlled trials on that showing, you know, intakes of 4,000 IUs per day is what's optimal to prevent deficiency in both mom and baby. Um, so I think, I think we need to, yes, give a little more credence to food first. And for B12, for example, if you're looking at some of the most rich sources of vitamin B12. You're looking at um, organ meats, especially mm -hmm. like liver, heart, extremely high in B12. I mean, concentrations of B12 that are like 200 times what you'd find in a steak or a chicken breast or something like that. Um, you also find really high amounts of vitamin B12 in um, bivalve shellfish, such as oysters or clams or mussels. Uh, levels that rival or exceed what you see in organ meats. And these are in like pretty tiny, tiny amounts of, of shellfish. I mean, it'd be like pop open a can of smoked oysters and have like two <laughs> and you'd be exceeding uh, the RDA for uh, B12. That sounds far better than liver to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, take your pick, you know? Um, yeah. Oysters, clams, 
mussels. They're, they're really fantastic food source, really inexpensive, available um, easily. And yes, the canned ones are, are safe. They've been, they've been, as long as you're buying it from a reputable company, they should have been canned in a way where they're not going to expose you to, you know, harmful pathogens. They're a really valuable thing to mix in, not only for the B12, but also for your iron, zinc, selenium, iodine, some DHA in there. There's a lot going on in shellfish. So yeah, I do think there's definitely a place for emphasizing certain nutrient-dense foods. Are there other ones? Like you mentioned at the beginning, there's a, like kind of a few powerhouses. So you've mentioned, mentioned eggs, organ meats, uh, bivalve. Yeah. Are there other yeah, ones? shellfish. Um, meat on the bone or mm. bone broth, mm -hmm. which is really essentially what we're talking about here is like eating animals nose to tail and recognizing that there are certain nutrients more concentrated in some parts of the animals than others. So a lot of vitamins and minerals tend to be really concentrated in the organ meats compared to just the muscle meats. But if you're eating um, completely nose to tail, if you think back to maybe if you were living on a farm or if you were a hunter-gatherer society, um, you would have made use of everything. You, you don't waste food. So whatever tough cuts of meat you have that don't stand up well to just being thrown on the grill or sauteed quickly, you would slow cook them. Those tend to be cuts of meat that have a lot of connective tissue. If there's a bone attached, there's connective tissue that attaches the meat to the bone, which has a lot of collagen in it. And as you slow cook it or braise it for a long period of time, that collagen breaks down. You get, you know, that really yummy fall apart, like pulled pork pot roast sort of situation happening. But you also get um, really high amounts of the amino acids that are in collagen. And of all the amino acids that um, increase in requirements during pregnancy, the one that increases the most is called glycine. And it becomes conditionally essential in pregnancy, meaning during pregnancy specifically, you have to have a dietary source to prevent glycine deficiency. Where outside of pregnancy, your body can do a pretty good job of making enough glycine from other amino acids to sort of fill in the gaps. But in pregnancy specifically, I mean, think about it. You have a lot of connective tissue being built. Not only is your body expanding, your, your skin on your belly and breast, the uterus, 800% more collagen at term than it does pre-pregnancy. Collagen is a third weight glycine. So, you know, a lot of glycine, a lot of these collagen amino acids, and you're building a whole new skeleton with all the connective tissue, skin, organs, teeth, hair, nails. Um, all of these things require glycine. And in addition, it's involved in methylation as well. So um, that is something where if you're not getting a regular source of collagen-rich foods in your diet, as you would if you're eating tough cuts of meat that have been slow-cooked, meat on the bone, the skin on your chicken, bone broth, then you're probably not going to be getting enough glycine to support all of these things um, happening appropriately. And so um, what do you see as the problems with the current guidelines? I know this could be a really big question, but particularly <laughs> how they relate to pregnancy. So I think probably the biggest issue is that they just haven't been updated to reflect the latest data. <laughs> so you can play that out for a lot of the micronutrients we've discussed. 
Um, they don't yet have that new data on choline that we talked about, suggesting that eh, maybe the recommended intake for choline is set too low. The first time we set a recommended intake for choline was 1998 in the United States, and it was all based on studies in men. And so it's a lot of these things are just guesstimates on how it affects pregnancy. Um, another example of this is the protein requirements of pregnancy. The first ever study to directly estimate the protein needs of pregnant women was performed in 2015. Wow. Prior to that, it was all estimates, primarily based on studies from men. And that study in particular found that our current recommended average intake of protein underestimates the actual requirements for pregnancy significantly by like 30 something percent in early pregnancy and 73 percent in late pregnancy. Wow. That's a That's big, pretty big judgment error right there. And so that definitely needs to be updated. As you update any of the macronutrient requirements, it affects the other ones, right? So like, you know, our, our diets are made of three macronutrients that provide us with energy, fat, carbohydrate, and protein. So you start upping the protein, then it's something else is going to have to decrease in response. Uh, I believe that our guidelines are far overestimated in the amount of carbohydrate required in the diet. Um, they suggest, at least in, in the United States, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in Canada, that 45 to 65% of your calories come from carbohydrates. If you look at the data on like what predicts whether a woman's going to be deficient in micronutrients or not, the number one thing that predicts micronutrient deficiency is excessive intake of refined carbohydrates. And even if you eat within the guidelines, and in the U.S., the guidelines are just eat half your grains whole, so the rest of your grain intake is coming from white bread and white flour products, um, and not to mention the, the high amounts of added sugar in so many people's diets as well, you're setting yourself up for micronutrient deficiency. And it makes mm -hmm. sense. White bread, white sugar is displacing foods that actually have some nutrition in them you know it's replacing your eggs and meat and fish and vegetables and whole fruit and nuts and seeds of course there's more micronutrients in those foods than any refined carbohydrates so um, that's a, a big error um, in my mind I also think that because we have been so myopic in our view of fat and have just decided since the 80s, or maybe even before then a little bit, that fat is the bad nutrient. You always want to reduce your fat intake. All of our guidelines are built around reducing fat intake. You also set yourself up for micronutrient deficiencies because, excuse me, because fat naturally tends to come packaged with protein. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating protein-rich foods in their whole form, there's fat in there as well. I don't think we need to go out of our way necessarily to be like adding in a bunch of fats. Um, not that I'm opposed to cooking with uh, plenty of fat to make your vegetables taste good and all that. But if we hadn't removed it from the protein food in the first place, it's like, let's see where the macronutrient balance in the diet ends up. 
And it usually ends up that you eat more than 30% of your calories from fat if you're eating real food. Um, so I don't think we need to be nearly as fearful as we have been on the past on um, fat, particularly when you're emphasizing that it's coming from um, whole foods, which also has all those micronutrients packaged with it. So that brings up a good question of like, there's lots of people that listen to this podcast who are in childbearing age and have been working on their weight and find a lower carb approach to be helpful. So if they get pregnant, eating a lower carb approach, how do you usually advise those people? Like, I I think this just brings up the whole question. Is it safe to eat lower carb while you're pregnant? Or do you need to reintroduce carbohydrates? So I think that depends on the level of carbohydrate restriction the person has been following. Mm -hmm. The reason being that if you are a person who has reduced your carbohydrate intake to the level that you're strictly following a ketogenic diet and maybe like a pretty, pretty low carb ketogenic diet, there's different, everybody has a different definition of keto nowadays. So I can't even keep track what counts as keto or isn't keto, but say you're eating less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Mm -hmm. If you put your food intake into chronometer or some other, micronutrient analysis software, you'll start to see where, where the holes are in, in your diet. Because if you're complying with, really, truly complying with that low of an intake of carbohydrates, you're down to the point where you have to measure out how much kale you're eating. You have to minimize the number of blackberries you're eating. You have to count out how many almonds you're eating. It's not just that people are reducing their intake of white flour and sugar and cutting out sugary beverages and fruit juice. I mean, you're down to the point of like micromanaging your leafy greens. <laughs> then, <laughs> then you do end up with some issues with um, micronutrients. If you allow more wiggle room for these whole food carbohydrates to come in. So we're still talking like low glycemic, don't really spike your blood sugar very much carbohydrates such as leafy greens and other green vegetables, berries, nuts, seeds, coconut, um, avocado. You know, avocados have carbohydrates, even though, you know, most of them come from fiber. But if you're tracking your carbs to the level where you're looking at limiting your total carbs and not even considering the non-fiber, the net carbs, then like you might even be limiting avocado, you know, right? So if you're allowing... Right. If you're allowing for those foods, um, which probably brings your total carbohydrate intake to 75 grams or maybe more per day, you're probably going to be just fine on micronutrients. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's, you know, not, not an issue. Um, I, a lot of people know my work because I am a person who has um, endorsed a lower carbohydrate approach to pregnancy specifically for people who are having blood sugar issues like gestational diabetes or maybe some pre-existing insulin resistance that they're going into pregnancy with. And it took me many years actually to take this stance because in conventional dietetics, you are, um, you're essentially told that the minimum amount of carbohydrates that you need to support a healthy pregnancy is 175 grams a day and going lower than that could potentially harm fetal brain development because you might go into ketosis. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so my first book, actually, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, has a whole extremely detailed chapter on ketosis, the different types of ketosis that happen in pregnancy, and defending that a low-carbohydrate approach is actually safe. Um, So I'm a bit of a a heretic in the field to even say that, but what I can say is that when you start looking at normal pregnancy metabolism, um, you see that ketosis is simply more common in pregnancy. It's part of the natural metabolic shift as you get to the second half-ish, give or take some weeks in pregnancy across all mammals, not just humans. Um, So people go into ketosis more easily in later pregnancy than they do at any other time period in their life. And it's not necessarily something to be concerned with. It's just a natural phenomenon. If you eat lower carb, you will also be going into ketosis more frequently. However, I don't think we have A, have the data or B, have the need to be in ketosis all the time. I just think that it's a natural state that we go in and out of and it's it's a-okay. So um, I have all the data on that in the books. If you want to get into it um, more, we can. Yeah. So the Coles note version is, I'm assuming from what you just said, that there's not really data that that fluctuating in and out of nutritional ketosis harms fetus outcomes. Correct. So pregnant women are about three times more likely to go into, to be in ketosis after an overnight fast, say not eating for 12 hours than someone who's not pregnant. Mm-hmm. You simply spill ketones into your urine. Um, however, blood ketones are still pretty tightly regulated. So as long as blood sugar is at a good place, which it typically is with low carb, and your body is still producing insulin, which it typically is in pregnancy, <laughs> unless you have type 1 diabetes, you're producing insulin. And in fact, you're often producing double or triple the quantities of insulin to account for the natural insulin resistance that happens in pregnancy. You're not setting yourself up for extremely high blood ketones, extremely high blood sugar, and extremely acidic blood, as would be the case of diabetic ketoacidosis. You, you don't see that happening. Um, and in fact, you see a protection from it because you're not getting the high blood sugar. I mean, people forget that diabetic ketoacidosis is this trifecta of metabolic disaster. It's not just there's ketones. And it's not just there's ketones in your urine, because in pregnancy, especially blood ketones and urine ketones do not correlate. You can be spilling high or large urine ketones and have trace amounts of blood ketones. So it's pretty tightly regulated. Um, Nonetheless, baby does get exposure to ketones, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, A lot of the older medical texts, or even some of the newer studies come out, when they're citing old research, make it sound like ketones are going to result in neurological damage to the developing fetus. But in fact, the developing fetus gets about 30% of its energy from ketones. Hmm. I mean, the placenta even manufactures ketones. So like at term, there's a really interesting study in 2016 that came out um, out of Japan in, you know, quote, normal, healthy pregnant women. So no diabetes going on. Um, they're at a, a healthy weight, healthy weight gain for their pregnancy. The ketones in the placenta were like 2.2 millimoles per liter, <laughs> like pretty, pretty significant. Um, and there are some studies showing that the fetus actually maintains higher levels of ketones than 
um, maternal circulation. So there's preferential transfer. I mean, it'd be a really bad human design for us to preferentially transfer something to the baby that is actively harming them, destroying their brain, <laughs> first of all, right? Um, but also we have to consider what's happening in, in traditional cultures as well. What level of carbohydrates did traditional cultures consume? And were we seeing brain development issues in their infants? And when you look at hunter-gatherer intake of carbohydrates globally, and this is from data looking at over 200 modern, modern living hunter-gatherer populations, their average intake of carbohydrates was 16 to 22% of, of calories. So you're looking at around 90 to 150 or so total grams of carbs, which is around the amount that I happen to recommend because that's just where the numbers come out when you plan a nutrient-dense real food diet. Mm. Um, but you see even lower amounts of carbohydrate consumption as you get to the poles when plant foods are simply not available year-round. So if you're looking at like the Inuit of Alaska and Greenland, then you can see carbohydrate intake as low as like 3 to 15% of calories. Mm. And we simply don't see that we have this glut of neurological damage in these traditional societies. So when you start looking at the comparison of ratios of macronutrients, I mean, take about 20% of calories from carbs, compare that to the guidelines of 45 to 65%, pretty far off. Then look at the micronutrient content of the different diets. Which one comes back higher? you actually do see that the ones that are eating within that range that these hunter-gatherers are eating, they actually have optimum, optimal amounts of choline, vitamin B12, iron, zinc, iodine. A lot of these nutrients that we know are essential for healthy brain development. Hmm. So it's a complex conversation that I think goes way beyond the ketone things, but we've been so myopic about the ketone conversation yeah. that we have scared people away from essentially just eating real food and not gorging on high amounts of carbohydrates all day. And I think this is a really good transition to gestational diabetes, because as I think most people listening know, the current guidelines for a woman with gestational diabetes is you need to be eating, you know, your 30 to 60 grams of carb per meal, your 15 grams of carb per snack. And if you have ketones in the morning, you need to eat more carbs before bed. So you don't have ketones. Um, so it's, I'd like to hear kind of your opinion just as an extension of what you're just talking about on that approach. Yeah. Well, I did follow that approach with my clients because, hey, I had been a person working on the guidelines that were suggesting exactly that. And uh, dietitians are very well followers. <laughs> so um, I did follow the rules. And my experience with clients was that that level of carbohydrates was too much. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes their blood sugar would get worse, not better. More than half of our clients were going on insulin or medication. They were complaining they were too full. They had heartburn. They couldn't eat all the food that we were suggest, all the carbs that we were suggesting they would eat, but then they'd be starving by the next time they would eat would be secretly reducing the amount of carbohydrates they were eating so they could maintain normal blood sugar control but because they quote, couldn't eat more fat because fat was off limits 
they were absolutely starving. So you end up with a situation where they're eating a high carb diet that's low in calories, they're starving, they're miserable, and despite their best efforts, they're going on medication and or insulin. Mm -hmm. um, so I did talk to a number of different people in the field before I had the guts to even suggest we could go lower carb. It seemed obvious to me that like, gosh, if I had insulin resistance, it doesn't seem like I would do well with 60 grams of carbohydrates at a meal or hmm, let's think of how this was diagnosed. I know every country is different in the US. They <laughs> yeah. do, you know, a, a two step 50 gram glucose tolerance test followed by a 100 gram test. Although in California, we were more progressive and did a 75 gram yeah, single time glucose tolerance test. Yeah, you do. We do. So 50 for an initial screen and then uh, 75. The 75 gram three outside of the US does. Yeah. So pretty much every country outside of the U.S. does a 75-gram, two-hour glucose tolerance test performed fasting. That's what the World Health Organization recommends, and that is a far better way to screen for gestational diabetes. But regardless of the way that it's diagnosed, think about it. If a woman has failed a glucose tolerance test, meaning her body is unable to process that quantity of carbohydrates and maintain normal blood sugar levels, why do we think that providing a similar amount of carbohydrates at each meal, like three times a day, is going to maintain good blood sugar numbers? It yeah. doesn't make sense, just from a common sense perspective. And moreover, it just doesn't work. So after a lot of the research, and most of it was on the ketone thing, I mean, I really, really dug into the ketone research. Um, I ultimately came out understanding that maybe this ketone thing isn't something we need to be so worried about. Um, and in fact, if you measure blood ketones on people eating low carb in pregnancy, you usually don't see, you see low levels of ketones. You're not seeing like diabetic ketoacidosis level of ketones. So just like we need to be, if you want, if you're a clinician, you have the ability to measure like serum beta hydroxybutyrate do so so you can see what's actually happening don't get so caught up in the the urine ketone situation um but watch what happens with the blood sugar patterns watch what happens with their food intake watch what happens with their weight gain watch what happens with how they feel um how much swelling they have your rates of preeclampsia your look at third trimester ultrasounds you can see the you can measure baby's growth. You can actually see the the fat mass on the abdomen and see if that's, you, you know, you're having excessive fetal growth or excessive adiposity setting you up for a, a macrosomic baby or not. And you'll see all of these parameters improve. So when I was in practice, the clinicians I was working with thought I was like some sort of miracle worker because suddenly all of our birth outcomes were better. And we weren't getting like, you know, gestational diabetes with preeclampsia, with polyhydrominos, with 60 pound weight gains, with 10, 11, 12, 13 pound babies. It was like all these parameters just got better. You control blood sugar, the blood pressure doesn't get excessively high. You control blood sugar, you don't have the excessive weight gain situation, you don't have the excessive fetal growth, you don't have the, um, 
the stimulus on the baby's pancreas to be producing a whole lot of insulin and thus storing a whole bunch of excess body fat. So all these parameters just improve. Yeah, and it's interesting if you think to like just future health of that child with what we know about the impact of the maternal environment and risks for obesity and diabetes and everything. Like what you're saying, if you know, if the baby's exposed to a more normal growth environment without accelerated growth, right? Does that impact future risk of th- thing, metabolic disease, essentially, like obesity or diabetes? Has that been looked at? Yes. Hmm. And the data suggests that in mothers with uncontrolled gestational diabetes or uncontrolled blood sugar in pregnancy, it doesn't matter if it's gestational type two or type one. Um, or, or I guess you could say even undiagnosed gestational diabetes, but they're usually not including that in their data set. You see at minimum a six-fold increased risk of type 2 diabetes or obesity by the time that child turns 13. I've seen some analyses that look at not only gestational diabetes, but the combined pre-pregnancy, overweight, or obesity combined with elevated blood sugar in pregnancy, and I've seen estimates of up to a 19-fold increase in the risk of the child's, in the child's risk of developing diabetes or obesity in their lifetime. It's, it's really a matter of managing maternal blood sugar with a goal of mimicking normal blood sugars as much as possible, not just gestational diabetes cutoffs, but what you actually observe in non-diabetic pregnant women, you're not stimulating, overstimulating the baby's pancreas. You're actually changing, like shifting how certain genes are um, turned on or turned off. It has an effect on, on methylation. It has an effect on the size of the fetal pancreas and the amount of insulin that is produced from that pancreas, which seems to carry over over the course of their life. I mean, this surge in childhood obesity that we're seeing is not just that kids are not riding their bikes enough and eating too much sugar. I mean, there's some effect of the maternal environment on these kids' metabolism. It's, it's pre-programmed. There's a ton of research on the epigenetics of this. It's really fascinating. It really is. And so you mentioned preeclampsia. Again, that's you know, anybody who does obstetrics sees a lot of preeclampsia, right? And we induce a lot of women for preeclampsia, see some get really sick. Uh, so is, where's the state of the evidence for like eating a lower carbohydrate whole or food approach as a prevention tool for preeclampsia? Is there so the data on preeclampsia, and I did look at this when I was writing Real Food for Pregnancy. So there's a whole section in, uh, I believe it's chapter seven on high blood pressure in pregnancy. Preeclampsia is such a complex topic because we can't pinpoint when, why, or how, (laughs) okay? So some of it could go all the way back to the way that the placenta implanted and, and the, you know, all these little trophoblasts and immune cells and all these, all these um, very early developmental parts of, of pregnancy and embryogenesis. Um, So I'll say that first off. Um, And then a lot of the data that we have on preeclampsia or just high blood sugar or high blood pressure rather in pregnancy um, is looking at single aspects of it 
And so you kind of have to pull from dozens and dozens and dozens of, store, of studies to try to piece it together. Um, we do know that elevated blood sugar tends to also elevate blood pressure. So there does seem to be a connection there. And we do see higher rates of preeclampsia in people who are consuming higher, higher amounts of refined carbohydrates, um, also higher amounts of fructose mm. and lower amounts of choline. And if you kind of think about this, I mean, this is a very simplistic way. I'll probably annoy physicians listening to this. But when you think about the placenta, the placenta is really, in effect, a temporary liver for the fetus mm. in a lot of ways. And a lot of the nutritional requirements for the placenta are similar to the liver. So it's like you can induce fatty liver by giving high amounts of fructose and depriving people of choline. You can reverse it with the opposite. And we do see from rat studies that uh, choline is preventative for preeclampsia. And you see reducing fructose can also be preventative for preeclampsia. So those are like two things I think would be really important. We also need to think about how the vascular system is changing in pregnancy as well. I mean, you have to adapt to a huge increase in blood volume. And so your blood vessels literally have to make room for more blood. Um, and some of that, you know, integrity of the vessels and also their ability to expand appropriately does relate back to glycine mm -hmm. you know you're you just need it <laughs> and we can see in a number of different research studies that glycine has an impact on blood pressure so i think that's another one that we need to pay attention to we don't have direct data on uh, a low carbohydrate diet in pregnancy preventing or reversing preeclampsia or anything like that um, a lot of this is looking kind of mechanistically at all these little pieces and kind of trying to like pull it together and just give people, you know, the best chances at being proactive about it, but knowing that it's a um, situation or a diagnosis that's not entirely within your control. And we don't mm -hmm. always know um, if we can do it or not. Um, but at least from the blood sugar insulin resistance perspective, we do know that we can play a role in that with managing the blood sugar better. And then by emphasizing a lot of these nutrients that impact your, um, your insulin resistance, so your magnesium and your vitamin D, um, those do play a role in preeclampsia as well. Excellent. So um, we're almost kind of to wrap up time. Are there any other like practical take-home points that you uh, like people to know? Hmm. It's always hard to like sum it up after we've been getting all, all uh, researchy, but if I can sort of um, just take a step back from the detailed aspect and sort of simplify some of this for people, um, the more nutrient dense foods, that you're consuming in your diet, the better. Um, that includes both plants and animals, in, in my opinion. And not only looking at unprocessed plant foods and reducing your refined carbohydrates and all of that, but also looking at like how 
how are you consuming animal foods as well? Are you taking the fat out? Are you taking the yolks out? Are you taking the fat out of your dairy products? Are you only eating, you know, boneless, skinless chicken breast and leaving out that important source of glycine? Like just sort of taking a more careful stock of the way that you're eating and maybe considering what did your grandmother or great-grandmother eat? There's a lot of nutrients in the foods that they um, ate that we might be missing out on with our, our modern diets. Um, and then I would just say that we really need to be conscious consumers of information. So don't just go by the guidelines. If something seems off from the guidelines that you're reading, do some extra research on it. You're all clinicians. I know like, you know, some clinicians really love getting into the PubMed Google Scholar stuff and some people don't. If you're into the Google Scholar stuff, spend some time on there. That's personally my preferred research um, search engine of choice. Uh, but spend some time in there to allow yourself to question some of these things that have been sort of doctrine for all of these years because there's a lot of room for improvement. And if you don't have the time to do that because you're a busy practitioner, I do summarize a lot of these points in Real Food for Pregnancy and they're all cited. So you can go right back to, you know, there's 930 something citations in there. You can go right back to the data and pull up the study for yourself and just be open to the idea that maybe there's a little more out there than what the guidelines or ACOG has, has told us. Mm -hmm. Which is great. I think my last question would be, are there, like you talked about trying as much as possible to get all the micronutrients from the diet, but are there supplements that you generally do recommend pregnant women take? Absolutely. Yeah. So First of all, I'm, I'm a fan of prenatal vitamins. I think probably 95 plus percent of people are not able to meet all of their micronutrient needs from food alone for the entire duration of pregnancy. Maybe there's like some days where you're eating really well and it works great, but like, you know, first trimester nausea and food aversions are real. Mm -hmm. um, there's There's a lot of you know, as somebody who's currently pregnant, <laughs> there's a lot of times in pregnancy where you're just not going to be able to always eat the most nutrient dense foods. And I think it's a really good insurance policy to take a prenatal vitamin. Um, I do also think for people who are not consuming, uh, you know, cold fatty fish several times a week, research says probably a minimum of 12 ounces a week for you to meet your DHA needs. Um, as well as iodine, selenium, and a whole bunch of other nutrients, you probably should be getting a supplemental source of DHA, whether that's fish oil or krill oil or an algae-based DHA supplement if you're somebody who doesn't consume fish. Um, and I do think probably my last most um, strongest recommendation on supplementation, and I think there's a lot of other places you can fill in the gaps, but the last one that I almost always include would be a vitamin D supplement. Mm. Uh, and particularly if you're living in Canada, you are at a latitude where you're not going to be able to make vitamin D from the sun for a significant portion of the year. It's just the UV wavelengths that come through and the angle of the sun is where it's at. Uh, you can't make vitamin D for probably six months plus. And the data is pretty clear that it's 
very, very safe to supplement with vitamin D. So you can pull up the randomized controlled trials on 4,000 IUs per day. Um, but moreover, almost no prenatal vitamins on the market contain that quantity of vitamin D. So do you recommend- Might not need it in the summer if you're in the sun a lot, um, but hey, get your serum 25-hydroxy D levels measured and see where you're at and, and supplement accordingly. Um, I, the, the rates of vitamin D deficiency are absolutely astounding, and the research on vitamin D is very, very strong for pregnancy. I have like a whole, vitamin D is like one of my favorite nutrients. So I have like a whole continuing education presentation on um, vitamin D in pregnancy specifically looking at, I think it's 75 research studies on the topic. And we have really strong data on like risk of preterm birth reduced 60% if you maintain adequate vitamin D levels um, in pregnancy. And that holds true across all ethnic groups as well. Wow. Um, a ton of strong data, of course, on bone development, um, helps with blood sugar metabolism, blood pressure, um, prevention of preeclampsia. <laughs> there's just, there's so many things that vitamin D does that I think it's a really important thing for us to um, have on our radars and, and also get our levels tested. So we know, do we need a supplement or not? And when you do recommend supplementation, are you recommending like 4,000 units? Or do you vary it based on their blood levels? Pretty much 4,000 for maintenance. And if it's low, you might need to go higher. Mm. So for me personally, um, during my first pregnancy, I was living in Alaska. So, you know, similar or higher latitude to a lot of places in Canada. And 4,000 I used was not enough to maintain my vitamin D levels. They were actually dropping. So I needed to supplement with more. But just for somebody who's at like has good vitamin D status, probably 4,000 IUs to maintain would be great. And I mean, we're looking at in terms of like adequate vitamin D status, the, the standard is typically about 30 nanograms per mil. You might measure in millimoles though, so you might need to do the conversion factors and the millimoles is a significantly higher number. So know that I'm using um, nanograms per mil, but in the US, it's typically, typically 30 nanograms per mil. That study I mentioned on uh, prevention of preterm birth was actually found the uh, higher cutoff rate of 40 nanograms per mil was what was predictive of that 60% reduction. And when you start looking at what's happening with vitamin D metabolism, the reason why it's so important is that your body actually converts the 25-hydroxy-D into a hormonally active form called 1,25-dihydroxy-vitamin D. And that is maintained at supraphysiologic levels in pregnancy. So if you measure like 1,25-dihydroxy-D in pregnancy, it'll be at what would be considered toxic levels to a non-pregnant person because it's doing all sorts of things that we don't even entirely understand for fetal development, for placental health, for so much more. And it seems like the level that's required of like substrate of 25-hydroxy-D to maintain those high levels is about a minimum of 40 nanograms per mil. So that's, that's what I aim for on my blood tests, but um, even 30 is, is 
better than lower. Right. All right. Well, Lily, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I found this fascinating and I think lots of people listening will as well. Thanks for having me. All right. Wasn't that great? I found her to be just chock full of information. I think I could have sat and quizzed her about various aspects for probably another hour or two. (laughs) She probably might not have wanted to do that. So I didn't. But I really think I'm going to get her books and read through them because I think there's a lot of interesting information there. Uh, So remember, you can check her out at lilynicholsrdn.com, and I'll put that in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments about this podcast, uh, send me an email over at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. If you're enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button so you get all the new episodes and please share this with friends. Uh, That really helps the podcast get out as well as leaving a review also helps the podcast get found by other people. And I really appreciate all the reviews and ratings you guys have left. All right. Have a great week. We will talk to you later. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.